From Troy Public Radio, this is In Focus Weekend, and I'm Carolyn Hutchison. This weekend, we start a new conversation with you, bringing you some of the interviews and moments heard weekdays on In Focus. Today, we're starting with one of our favorite recent interviews and visits to what is arguably one of Alabama's architectural treasures. Last November, over the Thanksgiving holidays, I paid a visit to the Rosenbaum House in Florence, Alabama. The home is famous for being the only Frank Lloyd Wright-designed structure in the state. We were curious to see if any of the design features in the Rosenbaum House were forerunners of today's tiny house movement. Jeff Ford, site director, looked around at much of the furniture that was built during construction. Jeff, where are we sitting right now? We're sitting in the original dining area of the house. Uh, This is an open floor plan house, so there are no real rooms. The dining area, it was a built-in dining room table, which is adjacent, well, stands between the original kitchen space and the living room. Describe the architecture and the interior design. So as I alluded to earlier, Wright designs in the open floor plan, which is so popular today. Wright actually began to experiment with the open floor plan as far back as the 19-teens, so over 100 years ago now. Uh, It's not a new idea. But the way Wright differentiates space is by either changing the elevation of the floor, the ceiling height, or both. So these Usonian houses, like this one, are designed around a central core, which contained the original kitchen, the heating and cooling system, or in this case, the heating system, and all of the electrical. Those are found at the axis between the two parts of the house, which is the living area and the sleeping area. Uh, The living area, or the living zone, contains the living room, the patio, which is outside the windows, this dining area, and the original kitchen, and you'll notice they're all on one level. Secondary functions, like the homeowner's private office, is two steps down. The sleeping area is two steps down also. You use the word Usonian. What does that mean? It's from the acronym for the United States of North America. Wright had been criticized for practicing in what was then considered an outdated mode or style by some people called the prairie style. And one of the main parts about the prairie style of architecture was that it was centered around Chicago and the great prairie. And Wright wanted to let potential customers or clients know that these houses could be constructed anywhere in the United States. So he remembered a word from an earlier time, Usonia. And he lived when? from 1867 until 1959. A lot of people consider him America's greatest architect. Other people, he is one of the greatest architects. To me, looking at the design inside this house, I am also reminded of the tiny house movement these days because there is an economy of space. Comment on that. Absolutely. Frank Lord Wright was a child of the Victorian era. If your listeners will think, get a vision of Victorian houses in their minds, those are houses you either really like them or you don't. You consider them cluttered with lots of unnecessary rooms, lots of furniture with things sitting around on them. And Wright is a reactionary in many ways. He wants to do away with clutter. 
he wants to simplify houses down to just basic things. But at the same time, nothing's plain. So that's the magic or the genius of Frank Lloyd Wright is to take simple forms, simple materials, and create a very peaceful artistic space. Also, there's another angle. He was after affordability in uncertain economic times. Compare the times that he was designing with today. Absolutely. The the beginning period, the thought processes, which led to the Usonian houses and their main construction phase, which was actually post-World War II, were conceived of during the midst of the Great Depression. And Wright called the Usonian houses his final attempt to create affordable housing for what we would call young professional couples, what can also be called middle or upper middle class couples, which has always been the hardest market. You, you have, for working class, you can get government subsidies, that sort of thing, to build housing. When I say you can, I mean contractors, builders, and architects. And for the rich, you have a market, too. It's that middle class that often finds it difficult to get loans, to get money, to build something for themselves. So Wright was trying to create, had always tried to create affordable housing, and he called these his final attempt. In your view, what are the similarities and the differences in Wright's designs and this tiny house movement? So to me, the uh, similarities are in that everything about them are designed to be affordable, whether it's the choice of building materials, the simplicity of building materials, the low cost of the building materials, the overall size. Now, to be honest, the Usonian houses are bigger, even the smallest Usonian houses, which is called the Seth Peterson Cottage, by the way, at 800 some square feet, are larger than the great majority of the tiny houses. Tiny houses really are tiny. The other part to me is that the Usonians were always considered permanent structures. Now, part of the whole beauty of the tiny house movement is that you can go two ways. They can be a secondary house, maybe attached to the parent's house. They can be called a mother-in-law suite, or they can be called something for the young folks to move out so they have a little privacy from the parents' home. Or, to me, the more intriguing part is the back-to-nature types that want something more than a camper or a tent. (laughs) They want something that more resembles a house, and those can be self-sufficient. They're off the grid, they call them. So they're out in the country, out in the woods, and they can move them around as needs be. You were talking about how Frank Lloyd Wright was raised in a Victorian-era household. What were the influences on his thinking, and where did those influences come? Wright would always first say nature, and he used nature interchangeably with God. So to him, nature was the number one primary influence. So any architecture or any building that tried to divorce itself from its natural background, he would not have been an admirer of. So that left things like traditional Japanese architecture, which is always close to nature, and also the craftsman movement. Now, the craftsman movement, you know, you have some technicalities there, but the craftsman movement was to give everything a handmade look, divorcing it from machine, but it was still machine-made. It just didn't look machine-made. It had a, 
a handcrafted look to it. So Wright admired both of those uh, movements. Now, he did some traveling in Europe. The Bauhaus came along, this mm-hmm. form-follows-function movement. How did that happen? Form-follows-function was not created by the Bauhaus movement. Form-follows-function is an axiom stated first in an article to a magazine by Frank Lloyd Wright's boss, the good old American architect, Louis Sullivan. Louis Sullivan first stated form follows functions or form should follow function. Wright was his draftsman at the time. (laughs) So did the Germans acknowledge his influence? Yes. Yes, everyone acknowledged Sullivan's contribution with that statement, yes. That was the first part of my conversation with Jeff Ford, site director of the Rosenbaum House in Florence, Alabama. The home is the only Frank Lloyd Wright designed structure in Alabama. Stay with us for part two as we journey a little further into this architectural treasure. Troy Public Radio, this is In Focus Weekend. I'm Carolyn Hutchison. And here is part two of our trip to the Frank Lloyd Wright-designed Rosenbaum House in Florence, Alabama. Our guide is site director Jeff Ford. Jeff, walking through this house, there are some narrow walkways, hallways. They remind me of Pullman cars. Was that an influence in his design thinking? Yeah, Wright can be applauded for always being pro-American in his thought, you know, that the Americans came up with the best ideas and the Americans had the best this and the best that. And one of the things that he thought the Americans had the best of was the Pullman rail cars. He admired their efficiency. They are good old Midwest corporation. And Wright really, to the point of jingoism, about Midwestern values American values, so he really admired the efficiencies of the Pullman rail cars. Can you talk a little bit about the family that lived here, the Rosenbaums, and how this house came to be? Sure. An amusing thing to me is that the Rosenbaums themselves always considered themselves, uh, as far as we know, as typical Alabamians. They liked Alabama. They liked living here, but they were not typical. (laughs) in any fashion. Uh, First off, the fact that this house or the land this house stands on and the money to construct this house were a wedding gift to its owners, Stanley and Mildred Rosenbaum, from Stanley's parents. Stanley Rosenbaum's father, Louis Rosenbaum, was an entrepreneur. They had moved to the area with the construction of Wilson Dam, which was the largest construction project in the nation at the time. It was taking place right here in the Shoals. Louis Rosenbaum came here to open motion picture theaters. So they moved to the area from the Denver area. Uh, Stanley was his only son and worked with him or for him from age 13 
up until 1960 when they sold the theater chain. Now, when he was a younger man, Stanley had decided to put his Harvard English degree to use, move to New York City, and become a writer. I like to say that fate sometimes steps in, and in this case, her name was Mildred Buchholz. Stanley meets Mildred there in New York City. She was a New York City native, a fashion model, a concert pianist, and an expert textile weaver. And in fact, this runner that was woven by Mildred Rosenbaum. On the table, on the table here. here. Yes. So they meet in New York. They date, as we would say today, long distance until she completed her undergraduate degree. They were married in Cincinnati by her brother-in-law, who was a prominent rabbi in the area. They traveled out west for a honeymoon. They traveled to Cuba for a honeymoon because you could still do it legally in those days. Uh, and when they arrived back here in the Florence area, they were at first offered to simply, we'll purchase a house for you. When they couldn't find anything that suited their modern and progressive taste, then came the idea of building. So that's how the house gets to be built here. And how did they settle on Frank Lloyd Wright? That's the other part of the story. So Stanley doing what I think every young person would do. He reached out to somebody that he thought knew something more than he did. He just happened to have a friend who was studying architecture. And he asked his friend to take a break, come home, advise them, or even better, actually design a house for them. And when their friend Aaron Green was unable to come up with a design that they either liked or probably felt like they could afford, because this was very early in Aaron's career, Aaron decided to step out of the picture. And that's when uh, they asked him to uh, recommend another architect. And Aaron Green, who was a great admirer of Wright's and was a wannabe apprentice of Wright's, had told them, why don't you just hire Frank Lloyd Wright? He's come up with something new, the Usonian-style house, something I think you would like. So that's the story. How big is this house? As it stands, 2,200 square feet. Now, the original construction was an L-shaped building of around 1,500 square feet, three bedrooms, two bathrooms. Today, we have approximately 2,200 square feet, five sleeping areas, three bathrooms. Jeff, if you will comment on the state of the economy when Wright was designing the Usonian houses and the tiny house movement today. So that is one of the greatest similarities between the Usonian house and the tiny house movement. They were both conceived of during harder economic times, and as in often cases, the hardest hit were the young people. And they might not feel that they can afford a home, so they look for unique opportunities and unique things. Wright understood that. And one of the main factors about these homes was in the earliest days was to keep them affordable. And so he chooses, literally chooses, materials that were on the lower side of being expensive. I mean, this house is constructed out of brick, concrete, glass, plywood, which was a brand new building material. The only thing that would have been expensive is the cypress wood, but it was chosen because of its durability. Now today, we have building products that are treated against our friends, the termites here in Alabama. They didn't have those things, and cypress is naturally resistant to insect and rot.
The furniture, was it the original furniture to it's, the house? It's all part of the package. Wright would uh, advise clients. I know when I was in school, one of the things we were told in history classes was that the Great Depression was caused by the, for the first time in American history, easy credit, where people could just put some down and pay for it later, and that all fell apart. So Wright would tell his clients, don't waste your money on furniture. Keep it for more important things like your kid's education. I'll give you everything you should need in a house. And that includes the unusual plywood furniture. And color scheme, I see yellow, I see the Very turquoise. Very colors. You will always see similar colors in all of these Usonian houses, so those are Wright's choices. When Wright designs a building, he designs the building itself, he designs the furniture, he designs the decorative elements to the house, and one of the most prominent places you'll see it is right above your head. That pattern is unique to this house. Each Wright building gets its own unique design. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. How many Wright houses are left, to your knowledge? I would say at least 500. And that includes all three of his former residences. Is this the only one in Alabama? It is the only one in Alabama. It is one of the very few in the Southeast. Today, it's the only one that you can visit on a regular basis. Now, we have two neighbors coming up soon. I hope they will be open to the public. So uh, tell your listeners to keep an eye out or an ear out, in this case, for the Shaven House, which is in Chattanooga and for the Spring House, which is located in Tallahassee. So where can people find out more about the Rosenbaum House? The best place and the easiest place for them to go to is our website. It is called writeinalabama.com. W-R-I-G-H-T, Write in Alabama. We enjoy having visitors. We enjoy them. They're from all over the world. We'd like to see more visitors from Alabama. Uh, we're tucked up here in the northwest corner, so sometimes we get missed by the, the rest of the state. So uh, come see us. Thank you so much for your hospitality, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of In Focus Weekend. We hope that you'll tune in next weekend and over the noon hour each weekday as we bring more of your world in focus. And remember, In Focus is also a podcast available at NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Carolyn Hutchison wishing you a great weekend from Troy Public Radio.